All right, folks, welcome back to your Heart in the Pain podcast, the NBA podcast where we ask the hard questions about the NBA. I'm your host, Matt, again, joined by nobody today. Uh, I'm doing a solo one. Michael is uh, not feeling the greatest, so I figured I'd pop this one out here real quick before the nice March Madness tournament's over. This April 8th, episode 40, and I've got a couple things to talk about couple uh, articles I want to go through with you guys and let's just hop right into it but before we do I'd like to give a special shout out to our sponsor for this episode of Heart in the Paint Podcast that is BG Natural Artisan Water taken directly from the islands of Fiji bottled in Aviti Levu you too can enjoy the wonderful taste of natural water from a remote island 1600 miles from the nearest continent uh, you can even taste sort of the tropical rainforest blends from the atmosphere as well as the slight amounts of uh, magnesium and calcium that give the, the water a little bit more of a basic flavor to it it has a nice smooth taste with those electrolytes you can even get it in one liter bottles and I will say uh I think Fiji has some of the nicest water bottles. They're really they're very sturdy. You know, you, a lot of times you get a water bottle and it just kind of crumples as you open the cap and explodes everywhere. Or, you know, you drink the last bit of it and it just makes all this noise. But Fiji's got some really strong water bottles and they come in one liter sizes. So uh, head on over to FijiWater.com slash NBA for your discount on your next order of Fiji Natural Artisan Water. With that, let's hop right into it with uh, maybe the most uninteresting news of the day, and that is The Athletic ran a NBA players poll asking them several questions in terms of, like, MVP, greatest of all time, uh, people you would start a team around. And I'd just like to go through these real fast. So uh, we'll start with the MVP votes. So the voting breakdown top five was James Harden with 44% and Giannis with 39%. Paul George with 13%. Joel Embiid with 2%. Then Kyrie, Damon, Kawhi all had 1% apiece. Uh, this was out of 122 votes, which isn't, a you know, it's like one third of the league. Uh, but it's pretty interesting how substantial Harden was over Giannis in this regard. I mean, this guy is, I think as of today, not any of the games have been played yet today, he is 54 points for passing Kobe for the third highest scoring season of all time by by a, by a player, not, you know, Michael did it a ton of times and Wilt did it a ton of times. But this would put him... Uh, you know, kind of third on that player leaderboard for most points in a season. Maybe that's what they're looking at. And also, I think you're just looking at pure isolation score. I mean, this dude carried a team without Chris Paul, without Clint Capella. I mean, wh what do you do at that point? And this is kind of similar to how we were all thinking this would break down anyways. I mean, I think last time me and Michael talked about, you know, is. Harden or Giannis, I think we were leaning more on Giannis those couple uh, days. It seems to just flip back and forth for us, really. It's kind of whoever's high, whoever has a greater moment. Um, 
you know, the Bucks have just locked down the best record in the league. So that's kind of an important bump up there. Uh, and then Paul George and Joel Embiid. We had Paul at three for a while, and we were a little slow on him last week because of you know his injury problems uh, and sort of this late thunder slump. And, of course, we had Embiid high because he's just the most unstoppable big man, uh, self-proclaimed unstoppable. Uh, but he's missed a few amount of games, and his sort of uh, conditioning leads to some problems there. Also, his team's so stacked, it's really hard to just give it to him. I mean, he's got Ben Simmons, he's got Jimmy Butler, he's got Tobias Harris, he's got J.J. Redick. I mean, those are all serviceable starters on another team that could be, like, your second scorer. So, um, kind of rough there. And then sort of Kyrie, Dame, and Kawhi. Okay, 1%'s fine. I would put Steph in this 1% conversation, but I think... People hate on the Warriors a little bit in the league still. Uh, and then there's another interesting one of building a roster from scratch. Who are you signing first? This is kind of like in 2K when you can do total snake draft with the entire current NBA league. You know, who, who would you take first? And this one is kind of interesting to me. Number one, Giannis with 36%. That's a large, large amount. Number two, a guy that we haven't talked about in a while, that's Anthony Davis with 10%. Number three, Joel Embiid with eight, almost 9%. Kevin Durant with 8%. And LeBron James with rounded to 8%. Um, pretty crazy when you think about it. Uh, these are all six, nine guys. So the like the next five were a lot of guards, a lot of smaller guys. I mean, Harden was number ten on this list with like one percent of the vote. Um, pretty interesting when you think about it. And I think maybe the most interesting part of this is Anthony Davis being number two. I think people are still really high on Anthony Davis, even though with all the kind of trade fiasco going on this year and him sitting out and then. Dell Demp's doing weird things. It's been kind of a smorgasbord of, I guess, bad impressions, maybe leaving a bad legacy in our mouth of Anthony Davis. But, I mean, this is a guy also that got that one playoff series win where they just snubbed the Trailblazers super hard last year and then, of course, lost to the Warriors. Uh, I mean, guy that... Of all the people that handle the ball, I mean, him and Embiid don't really do it on this team. Uh, both relatively bad three-point shooters. Uh, so I, it really shows how much the players are valuing the size, the boards, the blocks. You know, a, a guy that... Honestly, all five of these guys, you'd say one-on-one, -on -one, you're done on the perimeter or in the post. And... Maybe that's what you're looking for, and they also can sort of, all of them can pass pretty good. I mean, obviously LeBron and Giannis are more playmaker-type characters. And Kevin Durant's probably the best three-point shooter on this list, which is surprising for the top five at least. I think Steph was like number six, which is, I think, a little disrespectful. I probably would have put him up higher. I probably would have put him, honestly... Two or three, because you think Anthony Davis and Embiid have both had tremendous injury problems. I mean, if you 
assuming everyone's careers played out the same way, I mean, you'd be a fool to sign Embiid with your first pick because you're not getting him for three years. And he might as well be a lottery team at that point. You know, you think, I don't know how many like fantasy drafts you guys do, but a lot of times in sort of the fantasy realm, you're looking for these kinds of players that you take first, they're going to fill up the stat sheet, they're going to do it all. And Giannis is like always really high on his list, but so is a guy like Jokic even, or uh, Carl Anthony Towns. And I guess the players kind of see it, but kind of don't. So pretty interesting stuff there. You can check out the full breakdown of the votes online. Of course, you just look for, I believe it was the Athletic that ran this poll. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, again, it's, it's, it's always cool to see how we as viewers and then media and players all kind of view things just a little bit differently and you know again this was only 120 votes so it's not really the whole league representation another thing i want to talk about is obviously the final game of the ncaa tournament is today actually it's going on right now as i'm making this video i'm intentionally not watching it uh, so we have Virginia versus Texas Tech, and I'm all aboard. I don't know. I kind of like the Virginia redemption story. You know, they got they got blindsided last year. They've clawed their way back through some pretty tough competition, I'd say. Not the hardest side of the bracket, but definitely not the easiest. And they have a chance to be a number one to make it all the way and win the championship. But at the same time, I got a Texas Tech buddy, and... This is really their first year with a basketball team. They've kind of come out of nowhere. They've been the underdog the whole time. I mean, it's impossible to root against Texas Tech, in my opinion. Uh, the downside is this game is a game that you could take the under on 100 points, and I wouldn't be surprised. Like, if I did do, like, an over-under stat line, it'd probably be, like, 120, like, almost exactly. It's like, these are both really... Defensive teams, I think Tech's a little bit of the faster-paced one. Of course, Virginia's just, that's their history, is sort of the pack line defense, as they like to call it. And, I mean, their last couple of games have been 62 points, 68 points, you know, 59 to 61, you know, things like that. So you could take, like, under 120, and I, I, I wouldn't say that's an awful bet. I think it's still low. I think... Probably 125 is the sweet spot. I think that'd be like a 62 to 63, right? Um, speaking of which, we had the last weekend of the NBA go on. Uh, Charlotte beat Toronto again, which is pretty impressive. That's twice now in like the past month where Charlotte's basically won on a game winner versus Toronto. It's interesting to think about for the future. Uh, as well as... People are starting to clinch playoff spots. So if we, let me pull it up right now, you'll see what the current playoff picture looks like. So according to my metrics, the West has been locked up in terms of who's in and who's out. Now, uh, the range of the bottom few can still change. Uh, the Warriors have, however, locked the number one seed, which is pretty important. Uh, that was kind of one of the things going for the Nuggets is if they could get home court. 
Uh, so right now it's Warriors, Nuggets, Rockets, Trailblazers, Jazz, Thunder, Spurs, Clippers. And of course, those bottom four are just two games apart. So those can still move because we have two nights left in the NBA. At the same time, the East has locked in, except for those last couple spots. And this is actually the trickiest one because we have some actual head-to-head -head matchups here that could prove lethal. So right now we got the Bucks with the best record. Uh, then the Raptors, the Sixers, the Celtics, the Pacers, the Nets, the Orlando Magic, and the Pistons. That leaves Charlotte and Miami are currently one game back from that eighth spot over the Pistons. And both of those teams play again, most notably... Uh, tonight, Charlotte plays the Cavs, which should be a win for them. Uh, and unfortunately, they have a back-to-back -back tomorrow night. I'm sorry. This is... Tonight is March Madness. I mean, tomorrow, Charlotte has the Cavs. And the day after, they have a back-to-back -back versus the Magic, uh, which is actually a kind of important game for a back-to-back. -back because that would put them half a game ahead of the Magic, if, or actually uh, two and a half over the Magic if they won both of those. Uh, and we also have the Jazz and the Clippers on the 10th, which is a direct matchup for, that's the five seed and the eighth seed right now. If the Jazz lose that and the Clippers win that, the Clippers could jump all the way to the sixth spot. Uh, at the same time, we have... OKC versus the Rockets, which is obviously a hotly contested primetime matchup that could very well change some playoff spots. And we have the 76ers versus the Heat, just like last year. And the Heat play the Nets the day after. So the Heat have some clutch games here too, as well as we got the Jazz versus the Nuggets. I mean, there's still so much up in the air with this. Uh, I'm kind of almost upset that it isn't getting more airtime. You know, we've had these past, well, not last year, but the couple years before that, the last 10 games of the season were like, viewership was way down. It wasn't even worth watching. People were resting. The playoff picture was pretty much found out. And this year is like one of the few where really only one, two, and three are safe. And four, five, six, seven, eight, and then for the East, nine and 10 are all up for grabs which is absolutely insane. I mean, this is the parody you want, right? Uh, I mean, think back to last year, we had the Butler Timberwolves versus the Nuggets for the play-in spot, which is, is awesome. I love it when like teams are starting to get their groove, figure out kind of what their playoff plans are, you know, their kind of high-level strategy. And so these games end up basically being free playoff basketball for the most part. And I love it when regular season games are playoff games. I mean, there's nothing like it, um, especially when the crowd realizes it too. You know, you got you to get the crowd involved in these things. And if Charlotte was to make the playoffs, I mean, geez, that crowd would be ecstatic if they beat the Pistons on a Wednesday or if, uh, you know, I assume the Heat might make it too. I mean, it's it's so up in question for me. I mean, the Magic, uh, they clinched a spot with their win over the Celtics yesterday, but 
where they end up is still totally in the air. They're in, but, you know, where are they in? You know, are they going to lose a game to try and match up better? I mean, gosh. I mean, I hate to make that call as like a general manager or something be like, hey, guys, I need you to lose this game intentionally. And then the other team that you're trying to lose against ends up winning and then your whole plan gets screwed up you get a bad playoff matchup and you get bounced in the first round or something i mean geez what a hard call to make now speaking of hard calls to make uh we did send a email out to our favorite ringer staff member our winner of the championship bracket from last time Haley o'shaughnessy and uh I haven't gotten any response from her back yet. I was hoping we'd hear something back, but I did write a quick piece on sort of her uh, podium players segment that she's been kind of working on, sort of this content piece series where she takes a dive at some of the playoff teams and takes a look at some of the sort of the X-Factor guys that you wouldn't necessarily see in a post-game interview you know, getting questions asked every game, but they could totally have a game where they would be on the podium. And that is what she calls a podium guy. And so I wrote a little bit of a Dark Horse article because uh, I was a little upset at the two articles she wrote. She wrote one where Pascal Stiakam being a podium guy, which I felt was way too on the nose. Um, and then she wrote one with Joe Harris being a podium guy, which I also thought was way too on the nose. So I picked a little bit more of a dark horse guy for this article I wrote, and I picked Kenneth Fareed for the Houston Rockets, the manimal himself, the rebounding college D1 record holder currently, former Denver Nugget, drafted 2011. I mean, 2011 was just an absolutely amazing draft, by the way. I mean, looking at it now, I mean, it's right when all those players are hitting like their sweet spots too oh amazing so the reason why i picked freed is he basically gives you that secondary fast center type small center with a small c because he's pretty short he's only six eight which is like not a center but his leaping ability of course was what he was known for in college never really a shooter however his uh corner three ball isn't that terrible this year now he's out on a little bit of a redemption tour. He got bounced from the Nuggets earlier this year. Uh, got to on the Nets. Didn't really gel with the Nets. They couldn't really find a spot for him. And he ended up on the Rockets when Capella went down. Uh, and it was a good replacement grab for them to get because he fulfills a very similar role at a smaller size and is a little bit quicker, even though he's not as good as a defensive big. Uh, so there's a reasonable chance that he's sort of a matchup you know, it's always nice to have tools in your toolbox. You know, the Rockets have Capella, they've gotten an A, and now they have Fareed. You can argue that, you know, Capella is like their go-to center because he's tall enough to guard, you know, the Embiid's, and he's fast enough to beat him down the floor, even though his post-up game is not the greatest. I mean, this is a guy that was tutel tutelaged under Dwight Howard in those earlier Rockets years. And you have a Nene to battle in with some more of those power forward type guys. Um, however, he's honestly on his way out of the league. I mean, his conditioning's just not there. He hasn't really played a whole lot recently, too. And now you've got Fareed for these kind of ultra small ball lineups. You can really get up and down the floor. 
uh, much better if you had to do a pick and pop guy with those three I'd probably pick Fareed um, and I mean he's just a manimal I mean he's going to net you like five offensive boards a game I mean think about guys like Tristan Thompson who made a name for themselves doing that um, and he's he's really just like a glue guy for this team. I mean, you think yeah, I got him and PJ Tucker out there. I mean, that's that's tough stuff for Kevin Durant, you know. And that, and that's who you got to match up with. I mean, this is a rising stars game MVP. This is a guy that locked down Kawhi Leonard down the stretch of his home debut. Uh, he's, he's a twenty and ten guy by nature. And the better part is, is you know, in those early Denver years. He didn't really have the greatest of situations to really thrive. I mean, you got to remember those times of years you're thinking David West is like your perimeter power forwards, you know, pick and pop from 17 feet kind of guys that can also bang it down low. And the Manimal isn't a banger. He's he's more of a leopard, you know. He, he's agile. He can jump through the lane. He can jump over people. He can go around guys and grab the offensive boards. Uh, he can slip rolls really fast compared to the, the other Houston guys. And the best passing assist men are on Houston. I'm sorry. It's, you know, Chris Paul and the beard. I mean, who wouldn't want to run pick and rolls with them? I mean, maybe you got to take 100 picks a game, but, like, you're going to get it dished to you so easily. When Harden gets one foot in the lane, I mean, the other big's going to collapse on him. You got lobs all day, man. Just, just, just stay active. Just keep your... Keep your calves warm, keep your knees ready, and the Manimal could totally pull like a 2010 game in the playoffs, and he might not even get on the podium because it would probably always be Chris Paul and the beard, but he at least has a personality attached to him. You know, you think, I was going to say like, oh, it should be P.J. Tucker, right? But everybody knows P.J. Tucker from last year. You know, everybody kind of knows Compella from last year. Um... I would say Ariza, but Ariza's not on this team anymore. So who else could it be? Daniel House? I mean, it's got to be the Manimal, man. Dwight Howard, or uh, Dwight Howard, geez. James Harden's got the keys to unlock the Manimal. And so we've got one other interesting bit of news to talk about today, and that is Al Corver with a Players' Tribune article got published just this morning, actually. And it's an article about white privilege. And the reason why I actually really like this article. Now, I don't like his takes on white privilege and white guilt. Some of his stats he gives about sort of the black-white disparity is wrong. But the way he starts it out with... We got to take a, a rewind here a second for the 2015 Hawks team where it was him and Al Horford and Schroeder and Cephalosha, who is his now reunited teammate in Utah this year. Uh, and if anybody remembers that playoff series between the Hawks and the LeBron Cavs, where I think it was the Hawks year where they were one player of the month with their whole team. And there's an interesting news story that I didn't think get enough press about. And I'm happy to see Kyle Korver highlighting it. And it is uh, when Babo Cephalosha got arrested uh, in one of their trips to New York. 
And so he says here, uh, in 2015, is late in the season. Thabo and I were teammates on the Hawks. We've flown into New York, and uh, he got arrested down the street. And the big deal was he spent a night in jail, and he came out with a broken leg. Um, and he goes on to say how much of a great teammate Thabo was. I mean, he's got such a different background. You know, he grew up in South Africa. He knows all these different languages. Um, and yeah, so basically, uh, Thaba went kind of missing. He went kind of AFK for a night. All the teammates were worried. It came out the next day that he was at a club. He got arrested. Um, the New York PD arrested him with a use of force um, that apparently ended up with him with a broken leg, uh, which turned out to have what, in my opinion, is absolutely massive playoff changes because he basically took out your LeBron defender on the Hawks. Because uh, you got to remember, this was Thabo. I think he had just come traded from OKC. You know, the Hawks were like a 60-some win team that year. Uh, they were really clicking into the playoffs. It's probably one of Thabo's best years. And it's kind of overnight, it all changed. Not off some real accident, not like he got in a car wreck, like, you know, it's not like he was playing in a game and it just popped. It was, he got arrested, probably got shoved to the ground in an awkward way when they tried to handcuff him and he broke part of his leg and he, luckily, he didn't really get accused of anything, but obviously was in a tremendous lawsuit with the police department had to go through all sorts of surgery and this has been really the first year he's been back and that was that's almost four years ago now which is insane i gotta love thabo though he plays in air maxes which is also insane by the way so basically the rest of the article goes on to read about the earlier news that we reported about here on Hard in the Paint as a Utah native now, and that is the kind of belligerent, not belligerent, maybe blatant is the better word, extreme vocal uh, sort of racist epithets that Utah fans have been accused of recently. Uh, you know, most impactfully was Russell Westbrook about a month ago talking two reporters about that and Utah jazz authorities eventually banned that guy from life from the stadium as well as a guy from an event a year before with Russell Westbrook. So obviously this post kind of transitions into a bit about racism and it's interesting coming from Kyle Korver because a lot of the the vibe you get from this is he's really innerly conflicted about this. It feels like not in the fact that he is a racist or he isn't racist, but you know, it's interesting being an NBA player because you're primarily surrounded by, you know, 
most of the profession is black or foreign. I mean, there's not a ton of like white Americans in the NBA today. Now, the jazz team happens to have more white guys than most teams, but that's not saying a whole lot. I mean, you got Grayson Allen, you got Kyle Korver, you got some Euro guys, but those don't, those don't really count as white in my opinion. Um, and you, your your new golden boy is Donovan Mitchell, who is pretty dark skin. Um, so he goes on to talk about how he's sort of an, he's committed to being an ally, no matter how unwavering my support is for the basketball players of color. He goes men's and women's. Um, and he he goes on to say. I'm in this conversation from the privilege from the privileged perspective of opting into it, uh, which of course means that on the flip side, I could just as easily opt out of it. Every day, I'm given that choice as a privilege based on the color of my skin. So basically, what he is saying here is, it is the white man's privilege to opt into this conversation of racism an attempt to make things better and not kind of stand on the sidelines and allow things to happen uh, even if they aren't directly your fault or have your control or your impact or anything. He goes on to say, you know, but I can also fade into the crowd and my face can blend in with the faces of those hecklers anytime I want. Kind of like this camouflage you could have you know, in this culture of outrage and speak outism and all this, you know, sort of uh, culture of sort of keeping your head down, not really worrying about other people, allowism that sort of allows these far right racist corners to fester in secrecy because we all know about, he kind of goes on to talk about this a little bit more is, we all know about the obvious racist. I mean, the jazz fans that got kicked out, you know, the, the white shooters and, you know, Australia and New Zealand and even here in the U S they're just being blatantly racist. I mean, we can all see that as a society, but he goes on to say that we all as white people have a choice and need to opt in and be accountable for those that don't opt in and are therefore not condemning this toxic behavior, not necessarily of just these blatant guys, but also the sort of behind closed doors racist, you think, you know, the stereotype of like the white Southern woman that goes to church and, you know, prays everyone's God's children and all that kind of stuff. And then when they come home, you know, they don't let little Timmy go play with little DeMarcus down the street. Um, and so you can really see there's a lot of white guilt going on here. That's really the summary of the message to me. And And you can tell he's really, he's really thought about this a lot. I mean, there's, there's a ton of, like active thinking going on in this like you can see the gears are turning as he's writing this as you get further and further down which is pretty interesting um 
for such a hot button issue, you know, you normally see people really got their words figured out, their phrasing figured out, so nothing can be taken out of context, you know, nothing can be used as a soundbite later on. And this is where we get into the problem, is the really the last section of this note. So he goes on to say, um, he talks about statistics and percentages. Now he doesn't get super in depth in statistics and percentages. I mean, obviously there's no sources here. So we could all be lying. I mean, I have no idea. Um, but what I would like to say is there is a little paragraph here where he talks about black things being higher or worse than white things. And a lot of these have been sort of provably incorrect. Uh, I don't know how much you've watched about the Black Lives Matter debates, but these are like Trevor Noah type talking points where it's a sort of like the gun laws debate where, you know, they say, oh, so many mass shootings happen per year. And then when you get into the weeds of it, it's, oh, these mass shootings are really just a random gun discharging, you know, like within 100 miles of a crowded place. And that counts as a mass shooting or whatever the monikers are that kind of slightly change the vocabulary. It's so he, he starts going through a little bit of a, a paragraph here and he says, the fact that black Americans are more than five times as likely to be incarcerated as white Americans is wrong. You're going to see a recurring little trend here. And that is he is kind of correct but he's not really giving the full scoop and that is you've got to look at it as percentages and pure per uh, capita it's true that there is some imbalance like I'm not denying that but what I am saying is that these numbers aren't intentionally like correct like there isn't some groundbreaking knowledge here like i would highly encourage that you go actually dig through crime statistics poverty statistics you know drug charge statistics on this stuff and not just take it at sort of the face value Trevor noah level jabbing points up at the top because you can you can find people not that I want to encourage you to listen to Candace Owens, but I've have listened to her a couple times and she has gone through as someone that's a black right winger that gets a lot of shit for it. She's gone through and really analyzed these things uh, on her shows several times and talked about how it's not actually that like these statistics aren't overblown compared to what they're actually representing. Uh, so next sentence, he says, the fact that black Americans are more than twice as likely to live in poverty as white Americans is wrong. It's important to remember here that I believe the current percentage, let's, let's look up America's demographic real fast. I will actually Google this on recording right now because this is important. Race and ethnicity in the United States. 
we are 72% white and 12% black or African-American. So it's important to realize that these numbers are obviously very skewed if you do not take that into account. So, so uh, more than twice as likely to live in poverty as white Americans is wrong. The fact that black unemployment rates nationally are double that of overall employment rates is wrong. The fact that black imprisonment rates for drug charges are almost six times higher nationally than white imprisonment rates for drug charges is wrong. The fact that black Americans own approximately one-tenth of the wealth that white Americans own is wrong. Is that last line there, the wealth ownership one, that bugs me the most, personally. That's not because I don't want to give people money. I make... I could probably lose 10% of my income and be okay. Would I like it? No. Does it come down to a myriad of choices I've made in my life? Yes, because no matter how much privilege you have, you can easily just throw that out the window. How many stories of there are, you know, the rich kid that inherits everything from his dad and goes bankrupt or ends up being a druggie or, you know, just randomly does something really stupid and gets dies on the street or ends up without a family alone with no kids to give anything to. I mean, that's a story we've seen time and time again. And no matter what race you are, that can happen. So the fact here that he says black Americans own approximately one-tenth of the wealth that white Americans own is wrong. I can almost guarantee that is not a keeping into account the 72-12% split. You might say, oh, well, if we just do a multiplication of the percentages, shouldn't that just be one-sixth? Like, well, maybe if you think about it, but you also need to think about how if you just had, you know, a combination of things... There are all choices that you can make, and I'm not saying that some of these people have the agency or the ability to make these choices, but if you can just easily graduate high school, it's easier than ever to graduate high school. You can learn on your phone. You can pass with low reading scores now more than ever. I mean, they just shove you through the system at this point. Pass through high school. Not get kids until you're like, 23 or 24 I mean you got this lack of temperament and lack of discipline and responsibility going around especially in the black community I mean statistics will prove uh, the fact that more black children have are have, how am I trying to phrase this the fact that you know, black children are more than 10 times as likely to live in fatherless households as white Americans is wrong. Yeah, it is wrong. You know whose fault that is? It's not the government's fault. It's not the white people's fault. What do you want me to do? You want me as a white guy to force a black man to stay with the girl he shooked in high school and raise a kid together? Personally, I wouldn't... I wouldn't want to do that. You know, if someone want, if someone is willingly making a bad choice, I shouldn't be writing the rule that says you can't make that bad choice. Now, should I encourage you not to make the bad choice? Yes. And that's what I'm doing right here. I'm saying don't leave 
somebody with three kids don't pump and dump and going around in your hood neighborhoods and just like shtooking people left right and center and then skedaddling because you don't want to deal with it or she's crazy or you were drunk or you didn't use protection or whatever the reason is or maybe you leave because you get arrested because you're just a drug dealer you can't do that like I get it's hard because you're seeing people, you know, you're seeing your probably life is without a dad or without a mom or your older brother's a drug dealer and so you're roped into the whole thing or you live with your uncle and he's like an alcohol addict or all these other problems. I mean, you don't have the same quality of facilities. Maybe you got shittier schools, you know. You don't have anything in your neighborhood to do. But the fact of the matter is, is... As is sort of like the multi-generational curse that really everybody has to deal with. Maybe it's not a curse. Maybe it's like a quest. And that is if you want to climb the top of the mountain, you've got to climb uphill. I mean, no one said it was going to be easy to, you know, not go to jail for doing drugs. You know, nobody said it was going to be easy to climb out of poverty you know no one said it was going to be easy to not end up in jail i mean sure people always think about oh man you know hate this guy if i could just you know get him out of here my life would be so much better that doesn't mean you go murder the guy it means you learn how to cope with it and you move on as a you know, self-respecting citizen of the united states or oh man you know I just had an extra 200 bucks right now, you know, life would be so much better. It doesn't mean you go rob the girl down the street, you know, it means you maybe work some overtime. Maybe you try and find a second job. Maybe you find a new job. It doesn't mean that you need to go sell drugs down the road. You know, you've got to think about the kids. And I said this in my last YouTube video when I was talking about or social media and cell phones and how much problems that's been causing our future generations is if you center your life on what's the best for the not only me in the future but more importantly setting up the best future of success for my offspring and or potential offspring or my wife or whatever you won't make these decisions because what kid wants to be raised in a house where he never sees his dad, you know, or a house where he never sees his mom or a house where he's going to visit his dad in jail all the time or a house where people are shooting up the street at night or a house where his brother's a drug dealer. You know, that's not the best for the kid. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Having to make the tough choice of, hey, I'm I am living in a perpetual shit pool of drugs and crime and violence. I need to get out of here. And it sucks to say you gotta leave your family behind sometimes, but you know, now more than ever in just our the US things, people are less and less apt to travel across states for jobs you know maybe it's hard to say all right you know 
instead of hanging out with my homies, you know, at night after school, maybe I'll go to the GED study class. And I'll make fun of you for it. But they're losers. You got to do what's winning. What's a winning decision? You know, hanging out on the street corner, smoking dope with your friends, or, you know, spending some extra time on the SAT study book, or spending some extra time... Even like NBA players, you know, they can go club out all night or they can be Kobe and wake up at 4 a.m. and get your workout in before everyone even wakes up. You know, somebody out there is working more than you. And if you want to climb the hill of some of your favorite players that they've climbed, like Kobe, like Michael, like Magic, like LeBron, like Kyrie, all these guys, they're working when everyone else isn't. You know, that's how you, that's how you get ahead. So, I don't know, maybe this is a little bit of a rant on, like, personal responsibility in the black community, but basically I would encourage you guys to not only read this piece, but just take the last kind of chunk of it and don't don't trust 100% of the facts there. Like, okay, it's important to see that we have, there is some inequalities in the world, sure. Like, there's no way that we're never not going to have inequalities. I'm sorry, you utopia guys. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, and I believe it's the responsibility of anyone on the privileged end of those inequalities to help make things right. I think that's true in some cases, but I don't think it's the responsibility of people who are not responsible of it to try and right those inequalities. And that's the problem that you're striking... What I just read was actually one of uh, Kyle's lines here is uh, I was actually reading an interesting comment on this going around Twitter and Reddit and all those other things. There's a guy from, I think, Poland. He said he was. He said, I immigrated to the U.S. like a couple years ago, and I've been continually confronted with this mantra of I'm white. I'm on the privileged end of society. I need to make things right for you know, the black people or the Mexicans or whoever. And he feels disillusioned because his, him and his family were historically basically crapped on in Poland, you know, by Hitler and Russia and all those guys. And if anything, he feels more in common with the minority class because economically, of course, he's not where he'd like to be. His English isn't the best. He's in kind of a a geographic ghetto, so to speak. Um, and it's like, well, is it really his fault? Just because he shares skin color with the privileged class, so to speak, is it really his responsibility to make things better for not even his own family, for someone else? I mean, what's my, what's his play, you know? I think Kyle would say, oh, well, you need to give 10% of your money to black people or something like that. I, I, I just don't think that's fair. I'm sorry. Like, I don't think it's anybody's, res like, I think the most responsibility that someone should have on this is them at the individual level. There's the idea of, you know, clean your room, tend your garden, you know, take on the maximal uh, amount of responsibility that you can handle personally and climb that mountain yourself. And don't wait on other people to 
you know, throw you a lifeboat, start swimming, you know? It's it's really that simple. I mean, I'd love to get into sort of my personal story about that, but I know I've been on this topic for, geez, almost 15 minutes now. Um, so now I have to think of Kyle Corver now as a soy boy. I'm sorry. Like, you have just said pretty much all of the right things to get liked uh, by the mainstream left as, you know, pro-black. He doesn't even address other races, by the way. He's really just focused on black, which in itself is uh, kind of narrow-minded. He should really be more open-minded on something like that, especially with the intersectionality going around. He says, if you're wearing my jersey at a game, know that about me. If you're planning to buy a jersey for someone else, know that about me. If you're following on social media, if you're coming to a jazz game room for me, know this about me. This whole post, he said. If you're claiming my name, likeness for your own cause in any way, know that about me. I believe this matters. Uh, thanks for reading. And then he says, time for me to shut up and listen. So obviously I call back to the Laura Ingram thing on LeBron where she said, shut up and dribble when he got into politics there for a second. Now, I'm not too aware of Kyle Korver in terms of his real story or what his sort of political background is. Obviously, here he seems like a Obama guy, probably a Hillary guy, probably not a Fox News guy either. Um, but at the same time, how much of this stuff does he actually study? You know, from the stats he tried to give, saying is wrong. I mean, doesn't seem like he spent a ton of time on that part. It seemed more like this is the end of my rant and I need to assert some things here to back me up. You know, the fact that inequality is built so deeply into so many of our trusted institutions is wrong. I mean, that's kind of true. It's m kind of morally wrong, but you're... I don't think his mode of change is the correct way to go about this. I think you're, well, you're kind of playing a blame game in a sense. And, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you are right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you gotta, at what point is this not white people's fault anymore? You know, let's say, Let's say all of these stats he gave were all equaled out. We had perfect equity in society. You know, there's a, there's this common trend of the left wanting, uh, they call it inequality, but they really want is equity between everybody. The same admissions rates in the college, the same job percentages. You know, you want 50-50 in computer science. You want 50-50 graduation rates. You know, you want... 50-50 gay to straight rates, you know, whatever minority class you want, you want it to be 50-50 or at minimum uh, representative of the U.S. demographic. And in this case, it's obviously whichever one's higher, really. Let's say all these things are equal. Let's say that white and black Americans own 50% of the nation's wealth together. Let's say that they both basically never got charged for drugs. Let's say that nobody was unemployed. 
you know, you don't address the single motherhood here. You don't address the, about we flip the coin a little bit and say, you know, as a white person, you're probably biologically dis- disposed to be predisposed to be worse at basketball than your black counterparts. And look how much bootstraps you've clunged up to, my friend. But I mean, that's all I'm saying. I mean, you're stereotypically a white shooter. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be like uh, reductive here. There's some things that even you can say all these are built on society and our institutions, but all those things are equal. End of the day, there's biological differences in all of us that are going to make us probably gay, like probably something you'd be okay with or not be able to have kids or clinically depressed and schizophrenic or all sorts of things. And you can't just keep saying that any single problem that black people have is a inequality with white people. Therefore white people need to help fix it. You know, it's this idea of power plus prejudice. I hate it, man. I'm so sick of seeing this trend. It's just, ugh. like as soon as I saw the article headline, like I didn't even read the headline or I didn't even read the article until just a couple minutes ago. My heart sank a little bit. I was like, oh my God, like we're going to have to deal with whole probably week of sports talk about, you know, black, white racial tensions again. Like, guys, we're just sick and tired of it all. You even say this in your thing. That's exactly what I am about this conversation. I mean, what what news are you adding here other than giving context to the Thabo stuff, which I'm totally on board for. I think police brutality is wrong. Like, everybody agrees with that. Like, that's, that's a, you know, McFuck up on somebody's part. That's not... That shouldn't be a systemic thing, and no one's saying it is. But at the same time, you can't just use one anecdote and justify your whole thing. I mean, you've got two racist fans here and one police incident with a player. I'll give the police incident one a slack because that had playoff implications, in my opinion. I think if Tabo was in that series, the Hawks probably would have won that series. And then we would have been talking about uh, Hawks Golden State Championship that year, which would have been epic. Would have been a Rudy Tootie three-point shooty. I think the Hawks could have actually had a chance to win that compared to um, a Cavs without Love or Kyrie and playing Del Vadova 50 minutes a game. So I'm just, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say anymore. Like he says, it's all about responsibility. It's about that we've said the word equality for years when we went equality for a group of people. When we said inequality, we really meant slavery. Like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Who's a slave anymore? Like, we're all slaves to the economic structure, sure. Like, like we, when are we going to... Even, like, oh my God. So he talks about the guilt part. 
He says, as white people, are we guilty of the sins of our forefathers? He says, no, I don't think so. That should be your answer right there. But are we responsible for them? Yes, I believe we are. So if we are responsible for something that we did not do, are we really able to give the proper reparations for it? And then he goes on to say, and I guess I've come to realize that when we talk about solutions to systemic racism, police reform, workplace diversity, affirmative action, better access to healthcare, even reparations, it's not about guilt. It's not about pointing fingers or passing blame. It's about responsibility. I think you're pointing blame here. Like, I think you are pointing fingers. It's not about guilt, but your whole article here turns into a kind of a guilt trip on your self-psyche almost. Like, I, I just, oh my God. I, I need to, I got to stop this. Like, I've been trying to be kind of off Twitter, sort of off the, the daily grind of the news cycle. This just really kicked my butt. Like, I'm so disheartened by this. Like, this article could have had a totally different tone to it of, hey, these stats forced by this that are actually, like, per population demographic capita and are actually screwed up, here's what we need to do to fix it. Instead of just saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, give no explanation for it except it's the white man's burden to fix these inequalities. Boy, that sounds like some racist undertones there. What happened to believing everyone's equal? Why can't everybody have a hand in these inequalities? You know, you, you didn't mention any other races here. There's Asians in the NBA. There's a couple, you know, Hispanics too. You know, what, what's, what's wrong with them, you know? Either way, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Kyle Corver's jersey sales change after this. They'll probably go up. But the bad news is it won't be here because Utah is a pretty conservative state, even though there is some growing SJW undertones from the California rejects. I think we might see some interesting fans heckling at Utah Jazz games soon. I'm not, I don't have any Jazz tickets, so don't point the fingers at me, but... You know, this this incites um, a little bit of division. I mean, you're, you've got the classic psychological in-groups and out-groups here. I think that's the one of the major problems with how we phrase this entire argument. You know, my fellow Americans, what presidents like to say, and they don't like to say white America versus black America. And if you view everything in the lens of one group versus another group, you will always find inequalities. Like, I can find the inequality. There's not enough 
the fact that uh, there's nine times more black Americans than white Americans in the NBA is wrong. And I think it's up to uh, black NBA players to fix that. Seems fair to me, right? It's just another one of these things that I can't get behind. And speaking of getting behind stuff, I mean, you know, it all started with really this rock, paper, scissors of social movements. One of my friends broke this down to me. He's saying, you know, it all started out with the Black Power Movement. You know, they just stick their fist up in the air. It's nice and closed and tight. But that wasn't enough. So then, you know, there was this guy in Austria and Germany that was like, hold on, let me one-up you guys. So he sticks his hand in the air, open palm, and he is the paper of the relationship. He continued on what Rock could not do and just dramatically emphasized it. And then... You know what? You know what beats paper? Scissors. What group decided to hold up scissors next? Well, your ever-loving hippie group. And that's his communist theory, which is pretty interesting. I don't think it has a ton of mojo behind it, but it is kind of a little funny global game of rock, paper, scissors going on there. It's kind of hilarious. And at the same time, I think we're all aboard the Yang gang, right? Speaking for politics here for one more minute, I mean, we've seen this Andrew Yang guy just make circles around all of the sort of new media. He was on the Ben Shapiro program on his Sunday special, and dude, I think he did a great job of sort of, I don't want to say reclaiming left-wingers, I know reclaiming libertarians from the right wing, but if that dude runs as like, independent and or right wing like he's got a chance of going places i don't think he'll ever win running democrat solely off of your democrat you gotta run aoc and your whole power structure is based off of who has the most intersectionality points i mean that's why part of the reason hillary beat bernie minus the whole backdoor corruption superdelegate thing but he's he's an Asian, and if you look at the hard stats, Asians technically have better than white people. They get they have to get points deducted from their SAT and ACT scores to get into college by affirmative action. They are succeeding that much. You know what's some of the reasons they're succeeding? Multiple parent households, strict levels of discipline, low rates of drugs low crimes committed, emphasis on education, and family, and bringing honor to the family, and continuing the legacy. Maybe those are some notes that white people should take advantage of. And so, folks, with that, we will end this episode on the Paint Podcast. I'm sorry it really turned into more uh, hard in the politics, but that Kyle Corver piece really kind of threw me a wrench today. And um, like I said, I'm just kind of disappointed. I thought we were kind of over this talk. It seems like every six months we get like a nice Black Lives Matter piece from somewhere. So hopefully we won't see another one for a while because as we all know, 
Black Lives Matter can be just as racist as the Charlottesville riots. And with that, uh, we would like to give one more special shout out to our sponsor of Fiji Natural Artisan Water, as well as you can find all of our links to our socials as well as our emails in the description below. We always do love to have your questions, comments, and concerns at any point. You can send them in private or in public. We do appreciate a like, a subscribe, a thumbs up, whatever form of approval that you guys like to give because we'd like to reach more and more people with these episodes. I think we've got a decent product here. And even though Michael's not here, I think he would agree that we're kind of trending on the up and up. Our averages have been steadily improving this past uh, six months. So really proud of you guys. Uh, keep listening. Keep giving us feedback. We're kind of due for a mailbag soon uh, and some playoff bracket previews, which is probably something we'll do. And when Michael comes back, we'll work on his big data science algorithm that he's been working on, talking about players' primes and our playoff brackets, really. Uh, and so with that, folks, we will catch you all on the flip-flop. <laughs>